Subconsciously, I think one of the reasons I wanted children is that I could continue to build sandcastles. And, uh, you know, the delight of working out the design this time to hold back the sea eventually. You know, where to put the walls, where to put the towers. And then the growing anticipation as the tide gradually comes closer and closer. And then the scurrying around as it starts lapping the walls and you realize they're not quite as strong as you hoped and you reinforce them. I love the moment of defiantly standing in the middle of my fortress with the sea all around, hopefully with no other sandcastles in sight but mine. And then the final frantic filling in the breaches in the walls. And then that wave that comes and sweeps it all away. Happy days. Long hours spent, wasted, having fun. And that's great if it's a holiday leisure activity. It's desperate if it's a picture of a life that's made no lasting impact, has had no real significance. It was a bit like that for King Herod, Herod the Great, the Herod that was alive when Jesus was born. He wanted his lasting legacy to be the rebuilt temple in Jerusalem. He built it to curry favor, to get acceptance with the Jewish population. Because Herod had a problem, he was a muggle. He was a half-breed. He had, part of his heritage was Jewish, but it wasn't the most important part. The most important part was Edomite, the ancient enemies of Israel. And in any case, he was a king that had been imposed on the Jews by the Romans. They didn't like him, they never liked him, but he thought, let me rebuild the temple, let it have splendor and glory that would stand out in the world, then they would like me. But it never happened. He was never accepted. Herod died even before the temple was finally complete. It was a magnificent building. Scholars tell us it was the largest building site in the ancient world. It had pillars that were so large that three men with their arms stretched like as far as they could go. They could just about touch around the pillars. And the eastern gate, which was huge, was covered in gold and above it were sculpted clusters of grapes the size of a man. Josephus, the Jewish historian who saw that temple, said when the morning sun hit, the eastern door, it was like looking directly at the sun. It dazzled, it blinded. But the most impressive sight was for pilgrims coming up to Jerusalem because all that was not covered in gold was covered in white marble. Josephus says it looked like a snow-capped mountain towering over the city of David. but Herod never got the acceptance he craved. And as a lasting monument, well, the last 
craftsman put down his tools in AD 64, working on the outer courts. In AD 70, the tide of history turned and the Romans swept away the temple and everything was destroyed just like Jesus had predicted. Not one stone was laid upon another. And it was as though the building had work had never started. It was back to ground zero. It was back to square one. Although magnificent and big and glorious in its way, it was no more significant than a sandcastle. You don't want your life to be like that full of activity and effort, but no lasting value. Going back to the beginning, actually, is a pattern of Old Testament judgment. I don't know if you've noticed, when you read the story of Noah and his flood, the language that is used is an echo of the, right at the beginning of creation, when before God had done any of his forming and filling, the earth was void and formless and that language is picked up again and again and again through the prophetic judgments so when Jeremiah is talking about the coming exile he uses the language that again is an echo of before God started shaping and forming so this is Jeremiah 4 and Jeremiah says I looked at the earth and it was formless and empty, and at the heavens, and their light was gone. I looked, and there were no people. Even the bird in the sky had flown away. I looked, and the fruitful land was a desert. It had gone back to the beginning. And of course, that's what happened to the, in the history of Israel. Where did the history of Israel start? It started with Abram in Ur of the Chaldees, in the land of the Tigris and the Euphrates. And then you can trace the history of that people through the centuries. So there are the sufferings in Egypt as slaves. There is the hardships of the wilderness wanderings. There's the struggles to take the land. There are the battles to hold the land. There were the glory days of David and Solomon. And then the long, slow decline to exile. And where do they go? Where they're taken to? They're taken back to the beginning, to the land of the Tigris and the Euphrates. It's as though Abraham might, not bothered, might as well have not bothered. He might not have taken the first city away from that land. They were back at square one. It's though in history they were playing a grand game of snakes and ladders. They climbed all the way top to the top run. They were in the home straight. They were thinking glory days will go on forever. And with the final throw of the dice, they landed on the snake that took them back to square one. 
In fact, Isaiah uses an even more poignant image of wasted effort. In the ancient world, nothing was considered more painful than childbirth. When labor started, it was full of hope and risk. And there was utter despair instead of intense joy if a labor did not produce a live birth. As I write, we were with child, we writhed in pain, we gave birth to wind. We have not brought salvation to the earth, we have not given birth to the people of the world. It seemed that Israel was a fouled project. It gave birth to wind. Herod had built something like a sandcastle. It was a vanity project. Vanity or vanity, says the preacher. A striving after the wind. This morning, you'll be pleased to know I want to give you a burden. And I want to give you some cautions. And then right at the end, I want to give you some encouragements. But it's much more important that you get the burden because otherwise you won't need the cautions and the encouragements will be a waste of breath. They will be in vain. So I want to give you a burden. I know what you're saying. Burdens are lifted at Calvary. I've sung it, I mean it, and it's true. But burdens are also given at Calvary. I thought you're supposed to, Christian life is supposed to be one of exultant joy. It is. It's and both joy and burden. Look at what Paul writes. In 1 Corinthians 9, he um, gives a catalogue of um, his trials. He talks about imprisonments and floggings and beatings and shipwrecks, three, of days and nights without food, without water, without sleep, constantly facing danger. And then he says, to top it all, to top it all. Ah, hold on a sec. I've lost my verse. Where's it gone? Can you get it on the screen, please? That lost a dramatic moment, didn't it? There we are. Nope, I've given the wrong verse. He talks about the burden he carries for all the churches. Forgive me for that. Sorry, technical people. Sorry for people watching this on the screen. He talks about the daily burden he carries for the churches. Who is not crushed with this poison. Remember he says, who's sufficient for these things? Who can carry this burden? And so, I've got to get that verse. 2 Corinthians 11, that's what it is. Besides everything else, on top of all those trials, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches, the burden. 
who is not weak, and I do not feel weak, who is led into sin, and I do not inwardly burn. And Paul elsewhere in Galatians takes the image that Isaiah uses. He says, writing to the Galatians, am I not in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you? You see, it's a burden. It's a burden that he carries. I want to drive this home because I think it's a burden we should carry. And I'm not sure we always do. But if you want to lead a life of significance, you need to know this burden. So turn to Galatians and chapter 2. And who's moved Galatians? Ah, here it is. Paul writes this. Fourteen years later, I went up again to Jerusalem. Why did he go? For fear, or his concern, that I was running or had run in vain. Note this. This is at least 14 years of ministry that he's been doing. The highlight of that had been the church at Antioch this multicultural, multi-ethnic church where Jew and Gentile came together. That was a model, Paul thought, but now his ministry had been called into question. They called into question the application that he made of that gospel. And so he goes to Jerusalem to check that he had not run or was not running in vain that all his work might be undone, that it might have to be started all over again. He wanted to know had he built something bigger and better than a spiritual sandcastle. What about the church of Thessalonica? For different reasons, he has a similar sort of burden for them. You might remember that Paul was only in Thessalonica for about three months at most, a number of weeks. That's, it was a short period. At the end of that period, he and the team have to leave. So just think about that. In the church that had been formed in those few weeks, there was no one who'd been a Christian for more than a few weeks. And they were in a hostile, oppressive environment. So much so that when Paul gets to Athens, he is so concerned that he sends Timothy to find out. And he writes 1 Thessalonians after Timothy has come back and reports. And fortunately, he has a good report. 1 Thessalonians 3. So when we could stand it no longer, you see he's burdened, like stand it no longer, we thought it best to be left by ourselves in Athens, we sent Timothy. Why? To strengthen and encourage you in your faith so that no one would be unsettled by these trials. When I could stand it no longer, I sent to find out about your faith. I was afraid that in some way the tempter might have tempted you and our efforts might have been in vain. Paul was concerned that when Timothy arrived, he would have found that faith had evaporated and the church had disappeared. He is delighted that that's not true, but that what he was burdened about. 
There's a number of other passages in Paul that you could turn to. But let me give you just a couple uh, more. And here he changes the picture. He takes it to the picture of an athlete. 1 Corinthians 9, the right passage. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like a man running aimlessly. I do not fight like a man beating the air. No, I beat my body. I make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I might not be disqualified. Now, if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you have learned how to sidestep challenge. At least I have. A challenge comes and I... Oh, that's got past that one. So here, on this passage, we sidestep this. So it's like two ways. One is you go into the cul-de-sac of discussing once saved, always saved. Is that the right way to express it? Is that true? I'm not sure. Can you say it in a more nuanced way and you get locked in this discussion? The other way to sidestep it is to say, well, of course, Paul's not talking about losing his salvation. Just read what he writes elsewhere. Nothing can separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus. He feels secure. If a sovereign God has got you, there's nothing that can make a sovereign God let go of you. So that's all right. It's not about that issue. Let's move on. Oh, but there's a challenge which we try, if we're not careful, to avoid. Paul is not worried about his destination He's worried about fulfilling his purpose. He had a purpose. There was a prize he was going for. There was a crown that he wanted to wear. He didn't want to be disqualified. Have, do you ever ask you, yourself the questions that Paul asked himself? Have I run or am I running in vain? How do I make sure I'm not going to be disqualified? How do I make sure that I'm not running aimlessly? How can I be sure that I get the prize? We'll get back to what that prize is in a moment, but do you get the burden? Do you feel the pressure of the Holy Spirit on you? Your life is pregnant with divine possibilities. You have the potential to do things of eternal significance. But it's not a guarantee. It's not automatic. It's not a promise to the complacent or the passive. Paul was concerned that the church in the Thessalonica, the faith might have evaporated the church might have disappeared and it would have been all in vain. They would have had to planted another church, start all over again. And in 1 Corinthians, he uses yet another picture. Earlier on, I could have maybe started with it. 
Paul talks about building, building on the right foundation. And then he says, if any man builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood or hay or straw, his work will be shown for what it is. The fire will test the quality of each man's work. If what he has built survives, he will receive his reward. If it is burned up, he will suffer loss. He himself will be saved, but only as one escaping through the flames. So, a side note and a sidestep. Side note. The word used for being tested by fire has a verbal link in the original language, which we don't pick up, to the word used for disqualify the athlete. The word translated disqualified, he was concerned he wouldn't be disqualified, is I would fail to meet the test. That's why one of the reasons why I don't think he's talking about his salvation. Here, 1 Corinthians 3 is clearly not talking about salvation. But you could get into heaven by the skinny of the teeth with nothing to show for your life. That's what he's saying. And similar concern in 1 Corinthians 9. That's the side note. The side step is we go, oh, if you're not a leader, you go, well, that, you know, Paul's writing to leaders. That's what it is. You know, build on this foundation. He's talking to Apollos and people like that. I'm not one of those. And if you are a leader, you go, Paul's writing to apostles. This is only really to Guy and Terry and a few other people. It doesn't affect me. And exegetically, if you like that word, you might get 100% right because that's what Paul meant at the time and he was applying it to people like that. But for application, you get absolutely zero, even on minus mark. Don't you know that these things were written for our instruction? There's an application to us. We can all be like that. We can build with wood, hay, and straw. It can disappear. You can be busy. You can be frantic. And it comes to nothing. Nothing in God's sight. If I can misquote Paul again in Galatians, he would say, if you think like that, who has bewitched you? You foolish Galatians. Have you experienced or have you suffered so much in vain? Have you learned nothing? Your life is pregnant with divine possibilities. But you are not guaranteed to fulfill your potential. And we need to have that burden. Have you got it? Really, have you got it? Well, if you've got it, let me give you some cautions. Because once you've got the burden, aren't you concerned to get at least some ease from the burden? And you want to do something to make know your make life's making a difference. You don't just want to be burdened, you want to be letting that be a pressure on you to do the right thing. The trouble is, you can be so concerned to do something that you do anything. So I've got three cautions. One taken from the picture of the athlete, 
One taken from the picture of the builder, and I'm throwing in an ostrich just for, just for fun, but because it's there. Don't be a cowboy builder is the first caution. It is easier to build with wood, hay, and straw. It's cheaper, it's easier, it's probably quicker. When the three little pigs built their houses, I'm convinced that the pig that built with straw and the pig that built with sticks built quicker and bigger. And it was cheaper than the pig that built a house of brick. Aren't you? But depending on how you tell the story in your culture, two of them get eaten or two of them escape to the the wise pig who built with brick. Paul doesn't talk about pigs, and he doesn't talk about a wolf. He talks about fire. It will be tested by fire. And if you live in the UK, you know how important it is that you build with the right materials. There are tragic consequences if you don't. You know that, don't you? And it doesn't just affect life on this earth, it can affect people's eternal destiny if you don't build with the right things. Building with gold, silver and precious stones is not as quick, it's not as cheap, it's not as easy, but it will last. And as I prepared this, this is one uh, part of the burden that came to me. is they get, we get impressed with the wrong things. Just hold that, we'll come back to it in a second. Don't be cowboy builders. Don't be an ostrich. Whatever you do, don't be an ostrich. <laughs> What's he talking about? It's in the Bible, Job. This is, <laughs> this is what Job says about the ostrich. She lays her eggs on the ground and lets them warm in the sand, unmindful that a foot might crush them. She treats her young harshly, as if they were not hers. She cares not that her labor was in vain. For God did not endow her with wisdom or give her a share of good sense. Yet when she spreads her feathers to run, she laughs at the horse and the rider. She doesn't protect or nurture the children that God gave her but boy, is she fast. Wow. Here's the burden. I'm concerned that sometimes with young converts, especially if their stories are dramatic, for a year or two they are given celebrity status. I want to ask you to consider where are your new converts of five years ago? Where are they three, four, and five years on. Because I think sometimes we are careless like ostriches because we're so quick to move to the next thing that we don't protect or nurture them enough. And they might get trodden on us in our rush to new things. Or they might be crushed by spiritual enemies. 
But boy, aren't we fast. Boy, aren't we fast. That's a caution. Don't be an ostrich. And don't go for the celery. Just don't go for the celery, okay? The Corinthian games were second only in fame to the Olympic games in Paul's day, and he's writing to the Corinthians, and he talks about going into strict training. They all knew what that meant. Ten months of training before you could take part in the games. It was a rigorous regime that they monitored carefully. It included a strict diet. If you didn't obey the rules in the preparation, you were disqualified even before the race started. So it's a little ironic, if not to say comic, to say that the thing they were running for, the prize, the crown, the thing that everyone made such a fuss of, if you got it, was made of celery leaves. Ten months of a strict diet and they give you celery. I've been told more than once, I don't know if it's true, but you spend more energy eating celery than you get into your system by eating celery, which does suggest a rather effective way of losing weight, but rather boring. In their culture, celery leaves were very impressive. In our culture, what is impressive in the world sometimes infects our priority of values. What's fast, what's cheap, what's efficient, what's easy. I read recently a very interesting book called Misreading Scripture with Western Eyes misreading scripture with western eyes and it points out it's true of any culture that the dangers are the cultures of your the values of your culture subvert distort sometimes replace the biblical values and as you read the bible you read it through those lens and it distorts how you apply it one of the most challenging things it said is in the west we are tempted to measure what is Well, to value what is easy to measure. We are tempted to value what is easy to measure, not to measure what we truly should value. We are tempted to measure what is easy and to value that. I thought, oh my, you know those things? Get you and you think, I've got to think about that. Sounded a bit too close to home. Don't go... For the celery, don't go for what impresses, don't go for what gives you a headline. Just think about it for a moment. Before there were uh, kings in Israel, the period of the judges, who would have got the headlines? Well, I think it was Samson and Gideon and Shamgar. I mean, Shamgar killed 600 Philistines with an ox goad. I don't know what an ox goad is, but I think that's pretty impressive, don't you? 600 with whatever it was, an ox goad. And if it was today, they would have had headlines, they would be trending on Twitter, their photos would be on Pinterest. All all the social media would have it. 
Shamgar, Samson, who is the greatest? They don't get on, you know. There's a competition. That's what the media would be filled with. But these great celebrities in the book of Judges did not stop the moral and social decline of God's people. And the hope of Israel and the hope of the world was locked into a young Midianite widow and an older, faithful Israelite man. The widow, the immigrant, was called Ruth, and the man was called Boaz. And they married. And Ruth and Boaz had Obed. And Obed was the father of Jesse. And Jesse was the father of King David who was the great, 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 great grandfather of Yeshua ben Yusef, Jesus of Nazareth, the carpenter, the Jewish rabbi, the Jewish prophet, the Messiah of Israel, the savior of the world. Locked into this couple that never made a headline. Oh, there was a few people gossiping and there was a few rumours about this strange mixed marriages. They died not knowing the significance of their life. But the hope of the world was locked up in this couple. Do not go for the celery leaves. Do not go for what is outwardly impressive. It will seduce us. God calls us not to get headlines but to live faithful and faith-filled lives don't be a cowboy builder don't be an ostrich don't go for the celery leaves do you feel like some encouragement first encouragement is this that you study this theme for yourself in the scripture. Go back and look at some of the verses that we've looked at today, but think about them, meditate on them. Get out in a concordance and find this phrase, in vain, other times in the scriptures. There's other times even in 1 Corinthians where Paul uses that phrase. Or don't look for the words, look for the theme. Look at the theme of wasted effort. Read through the scripture to find out what is true spiritual success? What are the key factors in having that? What are the dangers and threats to spiritual success? Or read the, the king of Israel's. What made a good king? What made a bad king? What were the decisive factors in each? What happens when a good king turns bad? What happens to someone who is as wise, as wise as any man who ever lived and then ends in disaster read the book of Proverbs what is commended what's encouraged what we pursue what we should we avoid or read 1 and 2 Timothy one of the reasons that Paul wrote Timothy was that Timothy might not shipwreck his faith like Hymenus and Alexander see another image of wasted effort I've met people 
who are so sure that their faith is unsinkable that they have made titanic mistakes and shipwrecked their faith. Let it not be any one of us. Search the scriptures. I have found personally, I often get more insight going to the scripture with a couple of questions that I feel like God has formed in my mind and reading through sections and saying, what does this say? What can I learn on this theme from this scripture? And just highlighting the verses. And allowing God to speak to me. Look for those people that, whose lives really came to nothing. And look at those people whose lives in God's sight amounted to something. That's your homework. You can do that. You will tell if you've got the burden if you pursue this. Another encouragement. Let's take some encouragements from the athlete, first of all. What does Paul say? He says, I do not run aimlessly. I don't want to be disqualified. He said, run to gain the prize. What is the prize? What is the prize that Paul's after? What's the prize that we should be after? Well, you can find out what Paul's um, prize was in some verses, again, in Thessalonians and... <clears throat> When I try to read these out loud, I often, they are so precious. It's already beginning to happen. I get choked up. What is this prize? What is this purpose? What's this crown? What's his reward? What's he looking forward to? What is he spending his life, his energy, risking everything for? Well, he tells the Thessalonians. This is 1 Thessalonians 2. <clears throat> Verses 19 and 20. For what is our hope? What is our joy? Or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes? Is he not you? Is he not you? Paul was not looking for more diamonds in his crown. He wasn't looking for a bigger mansion in heaven, like sometimes we glibly say. He was looking for us. He was looking for a church. He was looking for churches. Paul's prize, we know it wasn't just decisions for Christ, but it was disciples. It wasn't people who just knew the truth but lived the truth. Not just people who could have, had a faith decision but had a faith experience now, daily, ongoing. His prize was mature believers that would be faithful to the end, who were in communities that stood out because they were spirit-filled. They were filled with love and holiness. That's what his prize was. People who didn't just pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is on, in heaven, but people who live lives to take that kingdom into every sphere in which they lived, in their workplaces, in their communities, in their homes, that they might extend the rule and reign of Christ. That was his glory. That was his crown. That's ours if we give our life to it. That's his purpose. So if you merge, you know, the picture of Jesus saying good and faithful servant at the end of your life. 
So you get there. He said, well done, good and faithful servant. And his, this is what I imagine. He steps aside, and there behind him is all the people that your acts of love and devotion and faith have been helped by. People that you've never met, some of them. People that you prayed for. People that you gave for. People who you do know, that you gave an in word of encouragement that you forgot all about. But it was spirit-prompted. And they're there, waiting, welcoming you, cheering you in. And we sing... To God be the glory, great things he has done, and the wonder of wonders, he's done some of those great things through us. That's the joy of heaven. That my Lord and Savior has done wonderful things even, even through this broken vessel, even in your life. What joy. That's the crown. That's the, that's the prize. Don't go for celery leaves when this is on offer. All of that will be nothing. Nothing. What's the prize? Is it not you? Is it not you? Another encouragement from the picture of the athlete, Paul says he goes into strict training. This is a fascinating part of 1 Corinthians because Paul is giving an illustration from his own life where he gives up his preferences, um, his ease, his comfort, his, what he would like to do, his rights, his privileges. He would give all those up that he might win some. I've become all things to all men that I might gain some. And he's using that as an illustration to apply it to the Corinthians. You see... The Corinthians are like some of us. Uh, two, three generations ago, we fell off the horse into legalism. That was our constant danger. Today, the more real danger is we fall off the horse the other side. We fall off into indulgent self-centeredness under the guise of spiritual freedom. That's exactly what happened there. The Corinthians would say, oh, we're adapting to our culture. We're going to eat meat in the idol temples. And he said, no, you're not adapting. You are compromising your faith. I started working on a little equation. I'm sure you, you'll be able to do it better than me. But adaptation without compromise is contextualization. Adaptation, the way we say the message, the way we live our lives without compromise of the truth is contextualization. But adaptation with compromise, you're just a chameleon. You make no difference. You're like salt that's lost its saltiness. And there is a danger. There is a danger in wanting to communicate with our world that we lose our distinctiveness. And when you do that, you're building with wood, hay, and straw. Rigorous self-discipline is required of the athlete for celery leaves. What is required of us? And then, just to finish, if you go to the picture of the builder, Paul says, when he talks about building with wood, hay, and stubble, he says, um, 
Take care. Be careful how you build. Now, that's a good thing for a study. You don't know what to do with your Bible, you know, devotional times. Why don't you take that? How do you build carefully? What did Paul do to show that he was trying to build carefully? And there's a host of things that will come out. And I'm just glad we've already touched on some already because I think I've got another message for another time in another place. But what did the early church devote themselves to? As a model for us, what did they devote themselves? What was the key ingredients that they didn't live wasted lives? They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the prayers, to the fellowship, and the breaking of bread. Listen, everything you do in obedience to Scripture that has been birthed in prayer and nurtured in prayer, everything you do... (coughs) in fellowship with other Christians that flows out of intimacy of God in worship. And that's what breaking of bread was for them. That, they never worshipped, I don't think, the New Testament church without breaking bread. But that's a topic for another day. If you are obedient to the word, you're diligent in prayer. If you're doing it in unity with brothers and sisters, if it's coming out of an intimacy with God, then you're not going to build sandcastles. And even if what you, your life amounts to seems a bit like Boaz and Ruth, and you think it's nothing much more than a sandcastle, now if it's built that way, it will stand It will stand for all eternity. The tides of history will not wash it away. When you go through the gates of heaven, Jesus won't reveal a little sandcastle. He will show you people touched by your life because you haven't built sandcastles. You have built with the living God things of everlasting value that will last all eternity. Now, and we're close with this. If you've got the burden, and only if you've got the burden, and if you're taking the cautions to heart and you are going to learn to build well, then these words of Paul are the encouragement to you. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor for the Lord is not in vain. To God be the glory, great things he wants to do through us. Amen.